Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends... Giselle Donnelly, I'm also at AEI, and... Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Katerina Stepanenko, uh, a Russia analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Kata, it's great to have you on the show. We've had your colleagues from, from the Institute here before, not least Fred Kagan, who's become a regular, and uh, it feels appropriate to start a conversation uh, roughly where we left our most recent conversation with Fred, namely on the subject of, of Bakhmut that you've done a lot of work on, research on, you've published uh, recently uh, a, a, an extended report on it, which we'll link to in the in the show notes. So, so, so it's a story that has been sort of ubiquitous in the media, yet many people find it somewhat impenetrable. So there was this battle going on for 10 months over a city that's basically sort of leveled by now. Uh, Russians took it uh, since our conversation with Fred, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group then declared that the Wagner Group was leaving Bakhmut and, 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 and handing it over, presumably, to the regular Russian troops. So could you just enlighten us briefly on what the meaning of the Russian taking over Bakhmut is, what what they think they are getting by, by taking it over, what, in fact, they have really gained by doing it, and at what price? Yes, thank you so much for this wonderful introduction. Um, we just published a piece a few days ago on the Bakhmut retrospective. Uh, I highly recommend reading it as it provides very valuable maps that explore the military side of things, of what the strategy was. Um, so I guess to begin with, the idea for Bakhmut was that it needed to be a part of a longer offensive campaign, a longer drive onto Slavyansk. Russians never intended to just capture Bakhmut when they originally planned this um, drive. It was one of the stops um, on their way to get to Slavyansk, which was the ultimate goal. When Russians withdrew from Kiev in spring of 2020-22, they um, moved all of their efforts onto Donbass. And the idea was to drive from south, uh, southeastern part of Kharkiv Oblast down the E-40 highway to Slavyansk from one direction. And then from another direction, driving through Bakhmut up to Slavyansk, uh, also on the same E-40 highway. And then another grouping would have pushed from um, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk area in the western direction also to reach Slavyansk. That way, Russian forces would suppress uh, major Ukrainian strongholds on their way and also push Ukrainians into an encirclement, a wide encirclement. Um, as the battlefield reality progressed, Russians were not able to push one of their groupings from the southeastern part of um, Kharkiv Oblast in the Izum area. Uh, they were unable to push it down um, south and had to focus on a shallower encirclement of Ukrainian forces in Severodonetsk, Lysychansk area. And they were ultimately not successful in that endeavor as well. Um, so what happened after that was when Russians 
were able to successfully capture Severodonetsk Lysychansk, they culminated um, and shifted their uh, focus on the smaller push for Bakhmut uh, through the means of Wagner forces. Bakhmut lost its strategic significance, its limited strategic significance, um, around September, which is when Ukrainians were able to liberate Kharkiv Oblast. Um, and that eliminated the northern part of the drive. And essentially, it doesn't make any more sense for Russians to push from Bakhmut to Slavyansk because there is no more wide encirclement at this point. It's just something that is not going to happen. And um, the story with Bakhmut really shows us uh, one key lesson is that Russians are unable to quickly adapt to the realities of the battlefield. They continue to pursue goals that are not strategically important um, and are failing to realize that what they're pushing for is not necessarily what is going to play a long game essentially for them. And then the second aspect of this is that um, really shows us that they value an informational victory over an actual military, strategically important military victory, uh, which has been baffling to witness because right after they lost Kharkiv, they started this crazy push for Bakhmut. They started to throw, uh, what is it, 40,000 convicts uh, into this one small city that they knew is not going to lead them to any further offensive operations afterwards. Um, so in that sense, I hope I answered some of your questions with what the mindset was. And now, you know, I watched some Russian television a couple of days ago, and the way that they portray Bakhmut is quite literally they compare it to Berlin. Like the Soviets have reached Berlin. That's that's the way that they approach it. And um, it's quite ridiculous. We should peel this onion back um, a couple of layers, but cut here for our listeners, we should probably give a little bit of basic Eastern Ukrainian geography. Um, uh, you know, I, I have to refer to maps myself in order to keep track of, uh, you know, especially when you get down to the Bakhmut level of, you know, population centers and stuff like that. But do you think it's fair to say that, you know, we have to Eastern Ukraine and the so-called Donbas is is sort of grouped around a handful, maybe three, four cities that lie in the center of of the region. And you may some of them the Russians have held and continue to hold. And as you referenced, you know, they've they've failed to achieve many of their uh, uh, objectives for for this year. So, if you want to maybe talk about what we deduce the Russian original campaign design to be, there's the question of encircling Ukrainian forces, but it's it's always ne- never really clear with the Russians whether they're driven by territorial and terrain objectives, or you know trying to decimate the or you know reduce Ukrainian military power. What what would be your take on the, the way the Russians approached this offensive, if we can call it that, um, over the last six months or so? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. The original idea was definitely more territorial based. The They really thought that they are, are going to be able to drive through all of the Donbass area and reach the administrative border of um, Donetsk Oblast by, I believe, May 9th was their original goal, May 9th of 2022. But 
that obviously has issues with the the reality of you know the time space realities are completely messed up in Russian uh, strategic planning, um, and they were unable to do that. Um, so they needed to downscale, and the downscaling was let's entrap Ukrainian forces, let's encircle them and weed them out and force them to fight through. That had failed uh, on the grand. Um, a larger scheme, right, on the wider encirclement. So then they changed to, let's push for Bakhmut, both for territorial objectives, but also um, for um, an opportunity to weed out Ukrainian uh, uh, troops to encircle them in Bakhmut and so on. However, I mean, if I was a Russian serviceman I would, uh, or Russian military strategist, I would see the way that Ukrainians have fought in the past, right, and see that they have a track of conducting uh, very strategic control withdrawals from their positions. They don't stay in dangerous positions. They didn't stay in the Sichansk when they perceived that they could be encircled or there was any potential threat to Ukrainian grouping. So um, in that sense, it was it was kind of weird because... For Bakhmut, they were pushing from north and south of the city uh, with the idea of encircling Ukrainian troops. But they were also pushing west through the city at the same time. So it, it like it looked like they didn't even want to trap them in the first place. They, it looked like they were pursuing two objectives to, A, capture the city because likely Russian President Vladimir Putin was urgently calling for it. And then on the other hand, they also were trying to push this objective of you know, scaring Ukrainians off, encircling them, um, weeding them out, um, and so on. So it, it, it's strange. I, it, it's um, they, Their military thinking is very chaotic uh, in their approach for um, battles like these. It's, it's almost like they're throwing something and hoping that it will stick um, from what it looks like um, in the way that they've conducted this fight. So... Now that um, it seems to me that, or or for me at least, I think for many others, I was just having a conversation with a friend um, who works for the government and she was asking me the same thing. Where are we actually with the Bahmut battle exactly because of this discrepancy that you're describing really well between uh, informational war and actual reality on the ground. And when I read your report earlier, you end exactly with the question of, has this battle really ended? Um, and so leaving, and I'll ask about that in a bit, uh, a bit later, leaving Ukrainian reports um, aside and trying to make sense just of, on the Russian side between what the Russians are declaring, who on the on the Wagner side have declared, you know, semi or or total victory in Bahmut now five or six times, and where actually you can track the situation on the ground. Where are we actually? Has the battle ended? Um, how much fighting is there anymore? The only thing we know for certain is that, um, or is that even certain that Wagner? Um, is withdrawing to be replaced theoretically by conventional forces. So can you help us kind of um, uh, bridge this gap between information and informational warfare and the actual situation in Bakhmut? Yes, um, of course. So Wagner announced victory on May 20th, I believe, and Russian Ministry of Defense and Putin also claimed victory over the city on the 21st. 
Um, now, this announcement really came after Ukrainians began um, to counterattack, successfully counterattack. Ukrainians regained the initiative on Bakhmut's uh, northern and southern flanks, um, while Russia continued to push for territorial gains in the city. Uh, the call for you know victory over Bakhmut city, I mean, Wagner could have called it a week prior to this. It, it was purely symbolic. Uh, they were fighting for uh, probably like remaining a couple of meters of the city for uh, quite some time. Um, they don't carry any strategic significance for Ukrainians. Um, Ukrainians look to be, they, they appear to be holding uh, two ground lines of communications to the city, one through Khromve and then the other one through Ivanivskia. So both lead to the city. This is very necessary for Ukrainians because, you know, Russians are very roadbound. Uh, they need roads to continue any type of operations uh, further. Um, so it looks like Ukrainians are controlling these, um, and um, the fighting in Bakhmut itself had decreased. Um, so Russians are not pushing forward past the city, and instead have um, assumed a defensive both in the city and on the flanks uh, because of the Ukrainian counterattacks. Uh, Ukrainian officials, and also we've observed from some of Russian sources, um, indicate that Russians are bringing some reinforcements to Bakhmut, likely possibly from um, Avdivka area. I say this because we have observed some DNR, Donetsk People's Republic, um, units operating in Bakhmut that were not previously there, which could indicate that they were transferred um, to support um, the flanks. Um, at the threat of Ukrainian count, uh, counterattacks. Wagner does not seem to be pushing forward. Um, it looks like they really have approached that culmination point. Um, I want to preface that we have been observing indications that they would have likely culminated a lot earlier if they have not received some support from Russian regular forces. Um, that is something that uh, we've been reporting on for, for quite some time um, we saw that they were suffering significant casualties in December, uh, but were unable, uh, the, but were stopped from essentially culminating uh, by receiving reinforcements from regular uh, formations um, that they refused to recognize were fighting with them until Prekozhin lately uh, later recognized that they were supporting the flanks. So this leaves us with an ongoing fight where Ukrainians have the initiative a potentially turbulent transition uh, between the conventional forces and um, Wagner forces. We know that their connections, uh, there's obviously conflict between the Russian Ministry of Defense and Wagner. So I'm not sure to what extent this withdrawal is going to be smooth. The relief in place, um, I, I'm not confident that um, Russia it has the capacity to quickly reinforce those positions. Uh, as Wagner is withdrawing at the threat of the Ukrainian counterattacks in the area, um, while the flanks are also in need of reinforcements to sustain their positions. So that's an interesting uh, challenge for them. Um, as of now, we have not seen um, any reports uh, from Ukrainians essentially saying that Wagner withdrew from the city itself. Um, however, there are some mill bloggers and obviously Wagner financier Evgeny Prigozhin that are claiming that they're withdrawing. Um, but so far on the ground, we have not seen that movement just yet. Only reinforcements arriving into the area. So just a quick follow up. Now, compared to, say, three months ago, what would you say is the force report 
um, on the Russian side between conventional forces, Wagner forces, mercenary forces, and and then DNR, which is a bit of a different category, right? I mean, it, it's really complex to say. We, we're not there, but... I can imagine if, um, for example, Wagner financier Evgeny Prigozhin recently had a whole meltdown where he was blaming the 72nd Brigade for military failures around Bakhmut. I can, I feel like that probably has some consequences on uh, the rapport that the, these regular units and these regular units that are reinforced by mobilized men that didn't want to be there in the first place. Um, and financially incentivized contract servicemen uh, that they wouldn't like this criticism too much. Prigozhin also kind of released his report card at the end of the battle for Bakhmut in his in his words um, of how select units have performed um, and you know made fun of the airborne troops and claimed that they weren't even there. Um, I don't think that really benefits you know with the building. Um, relationships aspect between the Russian Ministry of Defense and Wagner. <laughs> so we've seen a lot of Yevgeny Prigozhin lately, you know, making the news and rattling the Russian MOD and and sort of like doing things that are kind of hard to understand in an autocratic system from somebody looking at it from the outside. And 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 the question I want to ask you is, you know, like in, in, in this most recent of his rants, he makes basically the case for Russia to start taking this situation of total war, let's say, seriously, and putting in real resources and and, and putting Russians through sort of real hardship to sort of fight this war, mobilizing the country towards this one goal of of taking over Ukraine. Obviously, that's not a step that Putin has taken yet, who's been very cautious in, in, in how he sort of sells the special military operation at home. And and we've seen this this mobilization not go according to plan. But but what are the odds, given sort of you know your view of of the Russian sort of public debate and, and, and state of public opinion that that something like a situation of sort of total war could be could be achieved, a sort of total mobilization uh, on the sort of scale we saw in you know the Second World War, where like really everybody in the society would be sort of directed by this by this quasi-totalitarian state in Russia towards towards this one objective of conquering Ukraine. Yeah, I think you're very right into into pointing out that Putin has not reached that point yet. And I don't think that he wants to reach that point. The decision to mobilize um, any personnel relies exactly on Putin. He is very concerned about the sustainability and the health of his regime. And we know this because we have seen how he reacted to previous partial mobilization how he tried to scapegoat it, you know, downplay it. Um, but we also, we uh, we have a couple of reports analyzing Putin's decision-making. Um, and in one of my reports, uh, we looked at the way that he took the, he was preparing for mobilization or someone in his cabinet was preparing for mobilization in January of 2023. And there were some indications that they were planning to do so. I mean, they were trying to introduce the electronic, you know, conscription notification system. They were proposing, they, they had several deputies go on live television and talk about the necessity for full-scale mobilization, but he didn't do it. And he missed out on a key time where he could have done it, which is before the spring conscription cycle. 
uh, things get made really complicated uh, for the Russian bureaucratic system uh, around conscription periods, um, which was on April 1. Um, and ever since, we've seen Putin intensify the um, crypto mobilization campaign, meaning recruitment of contract servicemen, you know, expansion of private military um, companies. Uh, we are seeing um, recruitment in DNR, LNR and occupied Ukrainian territories. Uh, this is something that he had historically done before. Um, the only reason why he went for, you know, partial mobilization in the first place is because he had Kharkiv uh, Oblast collapsing in front of his eyes. And the decision for mobilization last time came, I believe, nine or 10 days after Putin had to had suffered a significant military defeat in Kharkiv. So to say that he is actively, you know, thinking about mobilizing or declaring um, it's going to be a stretch because I think he's very sensible to his uh, regime, to the fractures within his regime. And he already saw firsthand what the previous mobilization had done and, the, um, you know, the conflict that it had raised in several small villages across Russia and the broken information space that he had on Russian propaganda channels and so on. So I, I think... Um, I think for mobilization, for, for any further mobilizations, it is the question of, is Putin willing to take that risk again? Um, and I think that, you know, if he sees another military failure, he might be convinced to do another partial mobilization. But in the current state, uh, even at the threat of the counteroffensive, he does not seem to be, um, you know, considering that possibility likely out of concern for his regime. It's fascinating that you, that you say that because it looks like when you look at Russia from from like the West, the only voices that you hear are really just these super aggressive nationalistic male bloggers and or the lunatics on television, the sort of Solovyevs, etc., who are just sort of bleating about how, you know, like Russia needs to get into a sort of total war and like nuke... Ukraine and Warsaw and all the rest of it. So, 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 so those seem to be totally sort of disconnected from where, like, I guess most ordinary Russians are. Well, okay, it it makes for good television, right? Uh, you know, in the in the Russian context, but you know, uh, you know, you could put that stuff on Tucker Carlson or uh, Ben Shapiro's show. Almost look one lesson that should have been apparent from the prior mobilization is that the Russian military can't produce militarily effective units uh, at scale and in a timely way. They, they don't have the training pipeline to do it. They, they, at this point, they don't really have much in the way of equipment, you know? So what is the difference between a Mobik and a Wagnerite, uh, you know, Maybe the Mobik lives a week longer than the than the Wagner, uh, you know, convict or something like that. They they don't produce stormtroopers or whatever you 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 want to call them. Katrina, let me ask you to kind of turn the perspective around a bit uh, and try to figure out what the Bakhmut campaign uh, may mean for a coming uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. I mean, clearly the campaign has robbed Wagner of whatever 
military value it had. It's been a magnet for Russian conventional forces and even some of their more elite airborne units to the degree that those units are, are even a shadow of what they once were. And as, as you rightly point out, the continuing threat uh, that the Ukrainians can pose of either encircling or retaking Bakhmut. So the, it's like the more the Russians trumpet this supposed victory, the more catastrophic, you know, they, that means that they have to keep paying a price to ensure that it, you know, stays in the wind column or something like that. So without, uh, I know some, there's a question in there someplace. Uh, so, but, but seriously, how do you think the Bakhmut campaign uh, will affect uh, the fighting that's about to take place in in the you know in the larger uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive context. I want to start um, answering this question by prefacing that we don't uh, report on Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yes, well. yeah, Fred says that. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> we we pre- we pledge allegiance to uh, <laughs> to ISW. Yes, it, it's yes. something that uh, we obviously don't want to make it too easy for Russians. But, but and to, and what what how is it aided or uh, constrained Russia's ability to to respond elsewhere? So we've observed an interesting dynamic at the beginning of the year. And it was that Russian Ministry of Defense was really trying to deprioritize Bakhmut direction in favor of other directions. So they started, you know, the, there was the whole winter military offensive campaign that they were trying to push from Luhansk Oblast to reach the Nyetsk Oblast administrative borders. There was the whole uh, mess around of fighting around Mughledar, where Russians decided to move in a column across the minefield that didn't really go well for them. Um, We also thought that they were trying to, (laughs) they tried to intensify uh, fights for Avdiivka. And after they failed to achieve the winter offensive operation, win any, any significant territories whatsoever, um, we we noticed some conservation um, efforts. So uh, there was a decrease in shelling in certain areas less combat clashes. Um, and of course, um, taken from the words of Prigozhin, you know, there was a decrease in ammunition provided to him and to Bakhmut in particular. And he was screaming about the fact that he doesn't have any reinforcements, no one's coming to save him. And we assessed that the Russian Ministry of Defense was likely trying to prepare some grounds, you know, before the counteroffensive. They didn't want to just give everything to Wagner, you know, to blow through, uh, to blow through the remaining mobilized personnel um, in Bakhmut. At, po- at which point we saw uh, Prigozhin take it into his hands and threaten and say that I'm going to withdraw if you don't give me mobilized personnel, if you don't give me ammunition. Um, and I think they gave, they obliged by at least certain part of this because of how um, informationally important that moment was, right? And how bad it looked for Russia. At this current time, I mean, it it places Wagner in a position when they might skip out on the counteroffensive in general. And Wagner has been perceived to be one of the best Russian assault forces that we have seen. I mean, they fought for major urban centers, uh, you know, in Lysychansk, Severodonetsk, they fought for Papasna, they fought for Bakhmut, they 
it, it, it is a force and they are depleted and they're signaling that they cannot fight no more, that they have to take two months to, you know, step down and recuperate and retrain. And that's significant because not only is this culminative force not able to sustain defenses, right, on this vulnerable area, and we see that it's vulnerable. It's not something that Russians were able to defend around Bakhmut because they were focused on driving forth and trying to advance rapidly um, without, you know, taking it back to defend um, their positions. Um, so, yeah, it exposes them to a potential uh, area vulnerability where they lose one of their key fighters um, because they cannot fight anymore um, at the time where their lines are stretched in um, and they have to defend um, a really long front line. I mean, it's it's not a small segment that they have to protect. They, they don't know where Ukrainian counteroffensive is going to happen. Uh, no one does at this point, I feel like, but... Um, it's it really put, puts a lot of uh, not just you know mental stress on them, but also uh, from a military perspective, they need to relocate resources to make sure that Bahmut is also defended alongside of all of the other front lines that they have active. Um, and that is where the withdrawal, if it happens or even doesn't happen, uh, it's it's still a significant challenge for Russian forces. Um, ahead of the counteroffensive. Before we need to wrap up, I want to ask you, you focused um, just over the last few minutes very much on the reality on the ground. Um, and before we wrap up, I want to ask you also about the Russian reality, right? The information space, because I know you're following this very closely. So kind of a few elements packed into one question. You followed um, Kharkiv and Kherson through the eyes of the mill bloggers, also in terms of adaptation of narratives. And you've told us now how, you know, Bahmut was um, portrayed and is continuing to be portrayed um, in the Russian information sphere, whether that's on social media, on Telegram, or on TV, um, as uh, the new Berlin. Um, and so with them having in in one way to adapt to the losses around Kharkiv and Kherson that were bloody, um, and with the so-called victory around Bahmut that we don't know whether it's a victory or not, and the counteroffensive coming, at least in the in the common psyche, right, of uh, of Russia that needs to adapt. What are you hearing? What what are people saying? Um, particularly, I'm thinking about the famous mill bloggers that you guys are following so closely. What are they suggesting should come next, either in terms of defensive positions or in terms of um, unrealistically maybe, maybe moving towards conquering another area? And if I can just add to that very quickly... Um another dimension which has which has to do with um these um recent ukrainian incursions into russia and you know mysterious explosions happening all over the place whether most recently uh, it was i think a drone in krasnodar earlier we saw you know drones over the kremlin uh, this is stuff that has to get russians rattled a little and i wonder to what extent it will detract from their readiness to actually fight in Ukraine if there is suddenly this pressure to, you know, like fortify the Russian-Ukrainian border 
and 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 to sort of invest into capacity which is going to be away from the battlefield as a result of that yeah those are two wonderful questions um with the preparations for the counteroffensive uh we have observed a very stark difference from the way that russians reported on the counteroffensive before um around kharkiv kherson counteroffensives and now now it seems like they are um setting information conditions for both scenarios the russian uh defense uh works out really well and you know they're able to repel ukrainian attacks and then the other one is you know ukrainian counteroffensive um was successful um here's why so um we've noticed that there was some preparations in the infra space when putin had an interview on state television and the journalist legitimately asked him what is what about this counteroffensive and in that in that interview putin went on and talked about ta- tactic deployment of tactical nuclear uh, weapons to belarus and and so on so that was one they are um almost embracing it a little bit more head on uh whereas before they just downplayed it um the two main narrative is the first one is If we lose the counteroffensive, this is all because we're fighting NATO, we're not fighting Ukrainians. Of course they're going to win, you know, a battle because NATO has given them, you know, the most incredible equipment on this planet and that was a hard battle. That's okay. Uh, you know, we are still strong. We're going to keep on fighting so on. Uh and then the other line was we are setting all of the conditions to deter um any potential counteroffensives in ukraine we're making all of these strikes every day on kiev with no absolute reason to strike medical facilities but you know um so we're seeing that you know there every time that there's a missile strike and there has been already 13 just on kiev oblast this month um they claim that you know they deterred a ukrainian counteroffensive by one day and they are making it impossible for ukrainians to achieve any successes and so you know if ukrainian counteroffensive is unsuccessful there's a a backlog of informational conditions that they've been say, setting to you know say that we've tried everything and look it worked um so that's that for in terms of mail bloggers they are at panic anytime that there is any type of a localized counterattack the information space blows up they talk about one small village that probably doesn't matter to them it's the end of the world there's a lot of you know people turning onto each other claiming you know that they're starting panic uh very similar to exactly how they acted last year when we first started to see some commotions around you know Kherson it it exploded we probably spent like the whole day in the office just trying to go through the panicked cries you know and trying to catch as much as possible of that um and they are very prone to panic we saw that with belgorod um i think as of today we're still filtering through thousands of meltdowns um that are still ongoing about belgorod even though there's nothing going on in belgorod right now um so <laughs> it's uh it, it, they are less optimistic about russia's ability to continue further offensive operations the idea kind of went from you know maybe when you just mobilization and you know mobilize the economy mobilize industry and everything will be great to now saying yeah maybe this is not really possible we just have to keep on fighting but i don't know if we will be able to achieve the maximalist goal of reaching ukraine um they're really becoming a little bit more 
um, practical in their assessments, where they think, you know, that the possibility of Ukrainians being successful, even on a limited scale in this counteroffensive, is more probable than Russia continuing the offensive operations at its current state. Um, so in that sense, it's very interesting. Um, mill bloggers were also a lot more skeptical about Bakhmut than what Russian propagandists were. Um, a lot of mill bloggers were saying, you know, uh, something along the lines that culmination is near, that Wagner is not going to push forward um, because they're tired. You know, they need time to rest. They can't just go to Slavyansk now. Whereas the propagandists were saying, this is the best door that has opened in front of us. We're going to push for Slavyansk and Konstantinivka, and we're going to get to Vohledar from there. And that that's just, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, so that's kind of the two worlds that we're seeing, one that is becoming a little bit more practical, but still clouded by the vision of, you know, we need to win this war. Um, and then the other one that is still kind of torn away from reality, but is aware enough to set some informational conditions to justify both scenarios. That's super interesting and very good news. Can I squeeze in one last um, question about sort of what the Russian conversation is about Crimea? At this point, are they afraid that they might lose their grip or that the peninsula will become, you know, cut off and isolated? Or what are they telling one another about this? Yeah, they're very afraid of this. They are stating that, you know, Ukraine has been signaling that they want to come to Crimea. They're going to try to interdict ground lines of communication they're going to attack us and we we see this panic through field fortifications uh throughout you know the south you can see them in zaporizhia you can see them in Kherson oblast and you can see them in northern um in northern crimea and along the beaches they're really worried about crimea they're really worried about frankly i i'm going to be honest every day they panic about something um and it can be it can be somewhere irrelevant, you know, uh, and they will call it a counteroffensive. And then one of the mill bloggers will come out and call them out and say, this is not the counteroffensive. Like, come on, stop spreading the panic. And that's how usually it goes. But um, they, they're really worried about um, how vulnerable their positions are. Um, and um, that is really been we've been seeing a lot more of that since the, the victory over Bahmud that they claim. Um, is that they're worried that after Bahmut, they really need to prepare defensives, but that's something that they should have done before, at least in that area. I, I will just say that few things warm the cockles of us at, here at the on the Eastern Front as, 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 as the disappointment and panic among the Russian mill blockers. So, and I just hope we'll have more reasons for for Schadenfreude in the in the coming weeks and months. Katja, thank you so much for enlightening us and, and, and giving us this education on what's happening on the Eastern Front. Thank you so much. This was great. I love this introduction to podcasting. Yes, so we should tell our listeners that this was Katarina's first podcast appearance. I, we don't need to flatter her, but I, I thought this this went rather brilliantly. Thank you. From me, Dalberaj. Julia Sosa. And Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line, running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our 
our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.